Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of GaudiMitzbez22.com blog on podcast and YouTube video. I'm excited today having my former colleague back with me, Dr. Rodney Hauser uh, of DeSales University. We started started a, a series on the documents of Vatican II. That was about a month ago. And we dealt with the opening, uh, you know, the letter talk of Pope John the 23rd to the council to kind of set the tone for what at least Pope John the 23rd thought the council was supposed to be about and got a lot of positive feedback from people. So we're so excited for this for this series to, to keep going. And then, of course, the holidays hit and, uh, you know, and. Hauser, of course, had to go to Florida uh, for a couple of weeks, but that's okay. I won't hold that against you. And I've been busy doing a few other things as well. And my listeners and viewers should also know I am on the tail end of uh, this stupid sinus respiratory thing that's been going around. It seems to be hitting everybody in the whole world. Hit my wife first. Now it hit me. So I'm on the tail end of it. But if I launch into a coughing fit, don't 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 call 911. I'll be fine. All right. So anyway, we're going to start uh, once again with our series today, and we're going to focus in on the one of the most important conciliar documents, maybe the most important, uh, Dei Veribum, which is a, dog a dogmatic constitution of the church, uh, even though, as people often like to say, who are critics of the council, it's just a pastoral council, which oftentimes is simply code for. Therefore, uh, none of its teachings are dogmatic, and I don't have to pay any attention to the ones, the bits I don't like very much. But this is a dogmatic constitution. Uh, and even though the church does not put forward any new dogmas uh, in Dei Verbum, it is certainly developing some old ones and in important ways in a dogmatic constitution. So it carries some weight. Uh, people wanted to know, are we going to proceed first with Sancrosanctum Concilium, the first uh, declaration of the church, the constitution of the church that, that was actually, you know, voted on and approved. And the answer to that is no, we're going to start with Dei Veribum for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's, it's kind of foundational theologically to the entire conciliar project. Uh, but then also, even if it was one of the last documents actually approved by the conciliar bishops, it was, if memory serves, the first document that they actually considered. Uh, and so kind of chronologically, it was kind of one of the first ones on the on the docket. And that brings me uh, to my starting point. here. I'm going to give some brief remarks here. Oh, by the way, before I give my brief. Hello, Rodney. How are you <laughs> doing well, Larry? Nice to see you. OK, so we divvied this up beforehand. I'm going to give an introduction, sort of the historical lead up to Dei Verbum, which requires a sort of historical lead up to the council. And then R Rodney is going to dive into some specific uh, topical issues with regard to Dei Verbum. Uh, the very first thing I want to take note of is the title Dei Verbum, which means the word of God. Uh, and so the document is about revelation. It's the church's theology of revelation. How does knowledge of God get into us via Jesus Christ and through his church, a very contentious topic. And just the fact that, you know, the council called it, therefore, the first words of the document, the word of God uh, is a tip off, all right, is in a sort of what direction it wants to go in terms of what constitutes revelation. Hint, it's the word of God. Uh, but is that broader than scripture, the same as scripture? And we get into that. First off, let's let's do a little historical lead up. We have to go back to the 19th century, since we are focusing a lot in this document, not only on scripture, but on the very concept of how 
revelation is received historically and subjectively by, by human beings. And therefore, beginning in the 19th century, you got a lot of Protestant scholarship coming out of mainly Germany uh, that wanted to emphasize, uh, you know, what later Catholics would call a modernist understanding of things where uh, scripture in particular is, an, uh, is let's put it let's put it this way is a very 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 human document uh it, in almost every sense of the word uh and that it it has errors it went through uh, a typical process of development like any any book of history would uh and and that it it contains therefore the collected reflections of jews and christians from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Uh, but the very notion of a kind of inerrant, inspired word of God thing was, was called into question. And so they developed these new techniques, the, what was called historical critical scholarship. And through those historical techniques, the idea was we can achieve this sort of modern scientific understanding of the Bible and what it's really saying. Uh, this, of course, created turmoil within the Protestant world. And created a sort of fundamentalist, literalist, uh, literalist backlash. And, you know, so it's, it's that's a debate that's still going on. But then, OK, there, there, there were sort of Catholic versions of this in the in the modernist movement. And so you get there, there wasn't really in any Catholic seminary or theological school in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where you were allowed to explore these topics. One of the first sort of hints that there might be a little crack, a little opening to discussing these things was uh, Pope Leo XIII's document, Providentissimus Deus, which I believe came out in 1902, I think. It could have been 1896. But anyway, uh, I had it somewhere written down. But anyway, it's not important. Uh, the, the important thing is what, what, what Leo said in that document was, at the very least, we can take a look at original languages. We can look at the Hebrew and the Greek. In other words, we're not we're not going to be necessarily saying that only the Latin Vulgate is is the text out of which scripture scholarship has to proceed. We might be able to learn something by looking at the original languages. And then Leo XIII also established the Pontifical Biblical Commission uh, and, and tasked them with trying to figure out what a Catholic exegete can and cannot appropriate from these newer methods, uh, but very, very, very cautious still. And then, of course, Pius X comes along with, with uh, Pascendi and, and a few other documents, very anti-modernist, and he puts the sort of kibosh uh, on the entire project to an extent. But even he was anti-modernist, though he was, was saying, but we can open the door just a crack to looking at the scriptures in original languages, maybe looking at textual evidence. A new archaeological discoveries were being made of ancient manuscripts. And it was noticed, for example, that you discover a Greek manuscript, say, of the Gospel of Matthew in Egypt, and then you discover one in Syria, and you discover another fragment over in you know, Greece somewhere, and you discover slight divergences between them. And you're then able to do what's called text criticism, trying to figure out, well, what was what uh, to get as close as you can to the original the original documents. And so the church began to say, well, maybe we can take a look at that. And then the big breakthrough came with Pius XII and his encyclical Divino Aflante Spiritu 
in the 1940s, where he where he said, you know, uh, we can indeed look at original languages. We can look at text base, uh, these manuscripts and compare them. But he also said we can also take a look at and this was big historical critical developments in the in the arena of distinguishing different literary genres within the biblical text so that maybe just maybe you know it's possible to read something like uh, the first few chapters of genesis as uh, containing all kinds of symbolic elements and isn't necessarily a strictly literal historical account of things. So Pius Twelfth opens that door crack, and a lot of Catholic exegetes walked through that crack. And so there became this flood of, of scripture scholarship that begins to develop in the mid part of the 20th century on the part of Catholics. Uh, you, you eventually find Catholics like Raymond Brown and Joseph Fitzmaier in particular, who were very, very big in using in a Catholic way the historical critical method. Well, okay, so that that is the biblical part of this. So then you get right up to the Second Vatican Council. And of course, it was a big shock to everybody that John the 23rd, who was an older, what they thought, a sort of placeholder pope, uh, actually even called the council. Uh, and, and so it was, it was a shock. And one of the things that people need to understand is it does one of the reasons why you don't want a placeholder older popes calling a council is that it takes a while to pull a council off. It's not a case where, you know, 2000 bishops come together and they argue and then some stenographer writes down everything they're saying. And so then they collated into this document called a council. No, no, no. There were preparatory commissions. There were theologians on these preparatory commissions, mainly from Cardinal Ottaviani's holy office. And so most most of the schemata that had been written up, the, the, the drafts that had been written up for Dave Verbum and others were already done. And they were all done by primarily old fashioned neo-scholastic Thomistic scholars. And according to Peter Seewald's biography of Pope Benedict uh, in talking to, in the section dealing with the Second Vatican Council, he says that uh, <laughs> there were many, many people in Ottaviani's office, for example, who thought the council would meet in one session and be over with in two months and everybody would then go home because all the schemata had been written. They'd all been drawn up. They, they just thought, well, the bishops will give it all a big thumbs up and then off to Piazza Navona for some wine and Amatriciana, and, and there you go, and, and, and they'd be home. But that's not what happened. Here's what happened instead. In 1962, in October, the very opening of the council, the schemata that had been developed, which later becomes Dei Verbum, was called uh, De Fontibus Revelationis. Or, or on, on the sources of revelation, all right? And so, obviously, scripture and scripture scholarship is going to be front and center in determining that. But there was another question, and that question is, are there two sources independent of each other for revelation, scripture and tradition? And there had developed in the church a certain interpretation of the Council of Trent, uh, which uh, many council fathers considered to be erroneous, but nevertheless, an interpretation had arisen that there were two independent sources of revelation, and that one was scripture on the one hand, and the other was tradition. Obviously, this was a bit exaggerated, and it was exaggerated in order to make a counter-Protestant polemical point that we are not sola scriptura as Catholics. We do not believe that revelation is totally contained in a sufficient way by uh, by the scriptures. There is this other thing called revelation. And the idea was that, well, there's all kinds of truths that were passed on by word of mouth and other traditions. 
sometimes maybe even written that have been lost that the church has in her tradition that are not in scripture and and that that's a source as well well this this document that comes before the council fathers has a reiteration of this two source two independent source idea for where revelation comes from and as well a kind of cooling of the jets with regard to scripture scholarship <clears throat> so the the council fathers reject the schema they reject it they say no we're not going to so right there this is huge uh, joseph ratzinger later memoirs and yves congar and his says this was astounding this was shocking everybody just thought okay here's the schema everybody's probably going to vote for it. So even the guys that were disgruntled with it are saying well here we go and yet the council fathers said yet well not in russian but no no this is not good enough so then the idea was well maybe we need to shut this down the whole, maybe we need to shut the whole discussion down because it got contentious and start from scratch. So they voted on it and the council fathers actually voted to shut down the discussion and let's start from scratch, but they didn't get the two thirds supermajority to shut the conversation down. So Pope John, who was still alive, intervened at that time and said, we're going to shut the conversation down. I know we haven't reached the two thirds supermajority, but obviously this is, this is going to be a contentious issue, and it needs deeper theological study. So this is one of the great moments in the history of modern Catholicism, because had those bishops simply voted, yes, we accept this, the Second Vatican Council would have been radically different than what it turned out to be. The, the Council Fathers set the tone right out of the gate and said, no. We're not going to. Why are we even meeting in a council at all if we're simply going to rubber stamp the stale scholastic formulas that we've been living with for 100 years and which has created the very intellectual theological log jams and knots that we need to untie? OK, so no, we're not going to do this. So it went back to the Theological Commission, Theological Commission largely run by a Belgian priest, Monsignor Gerard Phillips. Uh, one of the most important yet unknown figures of the council. Most of his memoirs about the council remain untranslated out of the French. I hope somebody out there would do a great doctoral project of translating Philip's French in, into, uh, into English, especially. But anyway, so eventually then, De, De Verbum then gets, you know, it still keeps coming back, De Fadibus Revelationis. It's, it's then debated over the next four conciliar sessions. Uh, 62, 3, 4, and 5. And it's not given two thumbs up until the 1965 session after many, many, many amendments and debates and sending things back. And, I, and there were only six dissenting votes at, at the end, which is what Pope Paul VI uh, really, really wanted. And the irony is, and I'll turn it over to Rodney, the irony, this is going to be a pattern that we're going to see in all of the conciliar documents. Paul VI was very, very, very interested to the point, almost an obsession, that the conciliar documents pass almost unanimous, unanimously. And the irony is this. The reason why he wanted near unanimous passage of the documents is that he wanted to avoid post-conciliar turmoil. <laughs> and, you know, and so I, I, he must have been rather shocked when, when you get 2,000 yeses and six noes and the document passes with flying colors after four years of strenuous theological debate and development uh, that once the council's done, then the doo-doo really hits the fan anyway. Uh, and that's something else we'll talk about later. But anyway, 
anyway, that's the sort of backdrop to Dave Verboom. That's the lead in. So I'm going to turn it over to Rodney, who's got some notes uh, on the various topics that were dealt with. So go ahead. Yeah, thanks for, for that introduction. That's really helpful historical background. I've been reading about it in the last few weeks, and it, it's uh, that was contentious. Oh, it <laughs> was. First vote about that first document. Wow, it was heated. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I'll so, stop you there real quick before you yeah. get into particulars. Uh, it was heated. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is often said by critics of the council is that the council was manipulated behind the scenes by a cabal of uber progressive uh, theologians who placed these little theological ticking time bombs in the text and these little ambiguities in order to exploit it later. Nothing could be further from the truth. These documents were all beaten to death. They were debated openly and publicly. Every word parsed in excruciating detail, sent back over and over and over to the Theological Commission and Pope Paul VI himself getting involved in looking these things over. If there's any ambiguity in the council, it's simply because of compromise. It's not because of any kind of nefarious cabal of people that got together and pulled pulled one over on everybody because that was not possible. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. No, that's that's great. So I'll start by just making a a couple of comments in general about the document that kind of strike me. Um, And and there'll be very much in, in the line with what you already set up. And then I just I'll just mention uh, the three most contentious issues that, that the document addresses. And then we can talk about those, you know, as we see fit, but by way of introductory comments, the first thing to be said is, is you pointed out, starting with Dei Verbum, I think is important because I I think what tends to happen in in terms of the uh, interpretation of the, the council, it tends to get bogged down in sociological and historical matters merely. You know, many of the the scholars of Vatican II um, look at the council in in almost purely historical and see it sociological terms. And I think it's important, therefore, to kind of start with Dei Verum and Lumen Gentium to show that there's serious theological foundations for the Second Vatican Council. And 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 so that would be the the first comment. The second comment that you've already kind of anticipated is. Uh, there's a really concerted effort in Dei Verbum, and this is, I think we're going to see this pattern in other documents also, to walk a sort of tightrope between the neo-scholastic, the dominant neo-scholastic theology that you mentioned, uh, you know, earlier, that, that, that the first draft, the first uh, schema was straight up, you know, that. Uh, but then on the other hand, to at the same time guard against the modernist extreme on the other hand. And Dave Verbum is really interesting in this regard because it, it, in some ways, what it does is it kind of, it, there's a double attack against two different kinds of rationalism going on. On the one hand, there's the neo-scholastic attempt to codify the mysteries of the faith in timeless propositions. 
So yeah. theology begins to lose its kind of narrative and dramatic uh, uh, approach that you find in the fathers. And it becomes very much just the listing things that we believe, you know, and, and anathematizing things that we, we don't believe. Right. Well, um, it also presumes what it needs to prove quite often. Namely, it begins with these absolutely supposedly ironclad first premises that nobody can doubt because their right. source is God himself. And yeah. then you deduce from there without ever hermeneutically examining the extent to which those very first premises need a re-examination of some kind. Anyway, right. go ahead. And, and a kind of fear on that side of acknowledging any historical dimension to truth, revelation, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, so if, if you give one inch, apparently you're going to, you're going to invite in the modernist, uh, you know, problem. So throughout this document, we're going to see quote after quote, addressing that and correcting that tendency and 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 and, and, and do, it does so by returning to a more i would say patristic you know approach to some of these things uh and in and high scholastic not just patristic but thomas you know not the thomas so much but thomas yeah the, the other thing that, of course on the other side then is there's already a tendency as you mentioned in liberal protestantism to simply treat the document as a piece of, of his, a product of, of historical, merely yeah. human uh, authorship, so that all that needs to be done is to kind of uh, use the tools of the historical critical method to get to the bottom of the real things that happened, get rid of all the dogmatic apparatus that's been overlaid, apparently, you know, by theology after the, you know, the close of the New Testament, and uh, and discover, you know, a whole new uh Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, what's kind of troubling, I mean, the, the, again, it's my point is to say that Dei Verbum works hard to correct both of those tendencies. You know, it's constantly, you know, cautioning against both yeah. sides. What's troubling to, out of the gate then is the fact that after the council was over, the dominant approach to scripture in the universities in the West became very hyper historical critical. Yeah. So, it, it, and this is why I think it's important to kind of look at the documents of the council and what they say, because they do not sanction the kind of approach to scripture that I was introduced to at Marquette, where it was all historical critical, right? In our, in our scripture classes. Then when you go to a systematics class, you're not allowed to touch the Bible because you don't know the historical critical method as well as the historical critical scholars. So you end up just studying contemporary theology, <laughs> right? There's, there's right. no, there's, right. there's to be no place in the modern university, at least in my experience. And I suspect yours was the same for a theological reading of scripture that Dave Verbum calls for a kind of blending of historical critical method with the patristic uh, approach to scripture, et cetera, et cetera. And that's uh, troubling, right? R sort of right. And out an of almost non-existent sense, almost non-existent yeah. uh, of the normativity of right. scripture for, for Catholic theological discourse. Right, right. So so that's that's just kind of a general comment sort of out of the game. And just a, jo a joking sort of interruption yeah. I mean, on those same lines. When I was at Fordham, I took a scripture course. I wish I still had the book. It was it was a, a, a copy of the Torah, the Pentateuch, mm -hmm. uh, according to the JEPD hypothesis, you know, that yeah, there were yeah. four main literary and oral strands that JEPD. Right. 
and the it was color coded so that you could see which verses were from J, which were from E, which from P, D. I don't remember what color was which, but I remember distinctly there was one in, in the book of Exodus. There was one really long sentence that had all four colors in it. <laughs> now they're breaking down. They're actually they actually broke a single long sentence down. The words uh, from each tradition. But that, yeah, the, OK, this is obviously a sentence that has been added to and amended and amended and amended, which is why it's so long. All right. And that's why we've got all four colors here. Yeah. Uh, and yet, of course, it's silliness of, on, on the monument. But anyway, yeah, go back. Yeah. So much of it doesn't even rise to the level of science, uh, no. much less uh, does it excuse just ignoring the fact that Scripture is the word of God. I mean, that so that was the problem. Like we never actually got around to talking about that. You know, it was always you know, was Abraham an ass nomad or a camel nomad or, you know, <laughs> things, things, <laughs> you know, things like there that. There were no camels then. <laughs> so uh, let me turn <clears throat> to the contentious issues and we can talk about these because I think these are, this is yeah, where the let's do it. Let's rubber, do it. Rubber, rubber hits the road. The first one, as you point out, is how are we going to deal with the relationship between scripture and tradition? And, and just to kind of set up that thing just quickly, the, the neo-scholastic approach, as you pointed out, was simply to say there are two distinct sources of revelation, which really amounts to them saying something along the lines of there's two distinct sources of information. There's yeah. information we get from the Bible, and then there's information that's only in tradition, right? And it's, again, it's a very propositional and ahistorical approach to the idea of revelation, which, which again really raises the question, why would God bother to reveal himself incrementally over so much time to so many different nincompoops <laughs> if he could just drop, you know, <laughs> the book right. out of heaven with all of the right answers? Like that, they, that you know, that that really does have to be asked. Like, why go through this process? Um, and, and, and obviously one of the answers is that is because God takes our subjectivity seriously. So he's not going right. to just dump things that we have as, as Aquinas says, we have to know in the mode of the knower. Right. So the historical process of, of revelation is, is really important, but that had been neglected. And of course, that first document continued to neglect it. So that's going to be one of the reasons that. Well, they, they, and this, yeah, and that's one of the reasons it's rejected. This is a very important point. I'm, I have an atheist friend who's always saying the reason why I don't believe the Bible because it's precisely because it isn't. A, a textbook. It isn't yeah, a strict yeah. set. You right. would think that God would want to be clear why this crazy book of historical narratives and, mm -hmm. and, and, and nonsensical twists and turns of Jewish history, who gives a damn. Yeah. Right. But that's the point. It is a narrative. It's, you know, and, and so it's not simply a set of little Jewish nugget factoids to be gleaned out of there. <laughs> right. Right. So that's going to be the first issue. What's the relationship between scripture and tradition and Dei Verbum is going to develop uh, beyond that kind of 19th century approach that you're talking about. It's going to, it's going to suggest a more um, historical, uh, a more, a, a greater appreciation, I think, for the mystery of faith, that there's always going to be more that can be understood than we are ever going to get done with in this lifetime, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. The second big issue concerns the truth of revelation. And this is especially going to be the truth of the Bible. Is the Bible true? Right now, again, you you kind of laid it out. You know, the the hyper historical critical liberal Protestants are going to be like, well, no, it's a it's a lot of fiction. You know, we can tease out some truths, but it's it's a, there's a lot of 
just the errors in here because it's a purely human text. Of course, it's going to have errors, right? Um, so, and again, then the neo-scholastic answer is going to be no. It's 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 a hundred percent inerrant in every dot and tittle, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. That uh, that that approach. So that's a, another even problem. even in and 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 the question is. Is yeah. it entirely true, even in bits that don't pertain necessarily to faith and morals, like the name of a city in Syria from yeah. the seventh century BC? What if the Old Testament gets it wrong? Right. Yes, you know? absolutely. That's right. Yeah. So that's going to be a thing. And then finally, uh, the third thing concerns, which is kind of related to this, but it concerns the historicity of the Gospels. Uh, and there's a whole section of, of the, of the, uh, of the document that deals specifically with right. the question of the his historicity of the gospels. And again, it's that delicate walk between a kind of neo-scholastic, almost borderline fundamentalism and hyper-historical critical, like, oh, take it all with a grain of salt, you know, Jesus seminar style, right? So so those are the three big things uh, that we can talk about. Uh, and uh, and if, I mean, obviously, if you want to talk about anything else too, those are just the three, I think, most contentious issues that-, that They uh, were. So let's let's go back to the first one, yeah. the, the the notion of uh, the, 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 the day Baraboom treats and approaches the biblical text uh, as neither a rationalistic set of just bits of information mm -hmm. uh, straight from God, you know, and so, or it doesn't want to treat the Bible either as simply a purely human construct of some right. kind. Right. So what's, what's day verb? How does day verbum nuance that? How does it finesse the fact that, that the, the Bible is both a divine and a human project? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to, to be said there perhaps is, the very rejection of the two source approach that was in the first draft already indicates where Dave Verbum is going to go. And it's a notion, I would say, of revelation more in terms of almost like the self, God's self-giving. He gives himself to us in, 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 in Jesus Christ, who's the unsurpassable, you know, fullness of God's self-revelation. So the first thing to be said, it's a very Christocentric understanding that Jesus Christ is the word of God. And in some sense, we would say that the fullness of revelation is already there out of the gate. It's, it's, it's all there, right? Yeah. But, and this is where things get, get more uh, interesting, in order to unpack all the truth that is in Jesus Christ, we need the help of the Holy Spirit and we need time. And, and even John says, you know, if, the, if you know, if, there, if, if, if the sky were ink or the, you know, the sky were paper and the sea were ink, we wouldn't be able to write all the things that Jesus said and did or whatever. He's admitting yeah. that there's a surplus of truth in the original deposit that we're never going to fully understand short of the beatific vision. Right. So that right. already gets rid of this notion that 75 percent of the truth of God is contained in the Bible. And then another 25 percent is right. contained in tradition. I'm being very you know, crude in my way. Of well, the debate then is yeah. is about. Uh, well, I, I don't want to get because now we're talking about, uh, you know, tradition and scripture. I, um, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. The, the, the analog here is Christological. You yeah, brought yeah. that up. Right. That revelation as such is is God's incarnation in Christ. And so in order, I think, to properly understand how Dei Verbum, Verbum nuances the divine human, the theandric, let's put it, aspect of the Bible, is to look at the church's 
say, Chalcedonian Christology. Yeah. Uh, one of the great breakthroughs the church reached after debating Arianism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, is that the incarnation is such that when the human man, Jesus, sleeps, eats, drinks, that's God doing those things. And when Jesus performs miracles, that's the man, Jesus, also doing those things. In other words, it's called a communication of idioms, right? Uh, that in every single thing that Jesus does, it is at one and the same time in the co-inherence of the two natures together, both both a divine and a human act. And that's the great profound mystery of the incarnation. In other words, you can't, as Nestorius wanted to do, sort of tease out the human side of Jesus from the divine side of Jesus, so that when Jesus is sleeping and eating, well, that's the human. But when he's performing miracles, then the God, the God rays are shooting out of his eyes. And, you know, the God robot goes into action. It's not that. Every single thing he does is theandric. Mm -hmm. divine and human. Likewise, the scriptures, every mm -hmm. single word of the text is both divine and human. This is mm -hmm. why God, like you said, respects our freedom. This is why God used human agents. This is Dei Verbum's point. We believe in an incarnation, not an inlibration. The mm -hmm. Bible is not simply, uh, you know, every single word simply God on a page. It is God's word mediated to us on a page through human agency and human words. And therein is why it can't simply be turned into this propositional textbook. Right. It is first and foremost, this great Christological theandric mystery that requires a, a mystagogic pedagogy to enter into. All right. Yeah. You can't just say, well, I'm going to flip a Bible open and learn all the factoids I need to learn about Jesus. It's yeah. not quite that simple. Anyway, go ahead. No, that's really good. And and so the, to go back to that kind of original question, the way that, so, so obviously one thing you can rule out of court is the notion that God kind of dictates the words of the Bible to right. purely passive authors who, who know, who then, then write down everything he wants. And again, that would be the divine simply overriding the human, which wouldn't really do anybody any good, right? Because it's kind of like when you there's, there's a certain type of teacher these days because we're so obsessed with standardized tests and stuff who simply tells their students exactly what's going to be on the exam so that the students can then sit down and regurgitate what's, what's, what's been told to them. That isn't that kid actually learning a topic. It's a kid memorizing words that he doesn't even understand or she doesn't even understand, right? Because it's just, it's right. just rote, it's just rote re re repetition. So if we have to ask the question, like, why does Luke have to do research before he writes his gospel if he's inspired by the Holy Spirit? We start right. to get the kind of answer, right? That, it, that obviously God is not overriding Luke's humanity. He's not overriding Luke's <clears throat> personality. Uh, he's not overriding the fact that Luke is going to try to find out as much information as he can about Jesus from various sources. And he's going to try to put them together in an orderly way. That's right. Um, and then what's going to happen is mysteriously, the Holy Spirit is going to be guiding Luke in all of these uh, processes so that Luke doesn't put anything in there that is simply erroneous in matters of faith and morals. He's not going That's to. Right. Allow. So it's almost I, I tend to think of it almost like as I think about the gift of infallibility of the Pope. It's it's largely a negative gift. It's not a, it's not it's not that every pope is going to be a brilliant theologian. Or that every pope is everything that comes out of his mouth is going to be even 
very profound or 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 great for that matter. Many many. That's right. It's it's a negative. purely negative charism. What the guy's it, not going to yeah. do is wreck the boat. That that's he's got you know, the, the in, infallibility means he's not going to wreck the boat. And and given our current situation of the church, <laughs> that's a truth that is well worth pondering. Yeah, absolutely, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah, and that's where the ultramontanist nonsense that we've been getting a lot lately is 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 really silly. I mean, it, nobody guarantees that every pope is going to be a brilliant. Theologian. Well, well, let me probe that though a little bit. bit a little more deeply because the the charism of the inspiration of scripture is a bit more of a positive charism. Yeah. It's not nearly negative. Yeah. Yeah. That's overstated. Yeah. Yeah. But still I think, but what you're, what you're getting at though, and I'm glad you, I'm not chiding. I'm, I'm, this is profound. This is very, very important because I often sometimes think that this distinction between a positive and a negative charism is, is, is a bit overplayed uh, because I, I don't, I just don't, I mean, the, the Dei Verbum reaffirms that the scriptures are inerrant. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. They are inerrant because the pr- primary author is God. Right. And so it's, it's, it's going along with all those sorts of things. So that would seem to imply, well, that's a positive charism of pure inspiration. And yet also Dei Verbum says, but it's also this um, at the same time, mediated through human agency, human culture, and so on. Absolutely. And so there, there is, in many ways, a kind of negative charism going on here, which is that, yes, there, the, every, everything in Scripture is there because God wants it to be there, but he wants it to be there precisely in a way that shows the human side of things here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of stumbling to try and, and, and get this out. And so God has got to sort of step in and make sure, as this is all getting filtered through human agency, that there aren't any howlers of nonsense going on. You know, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And that and that's, you know, kind of precisely the, the point. And it seems like the wording of Dei Verbum allows therefore the poss- therefore for the possibility that the measurement of a lake in the book of Exodus is not. The proper is measure. incorrect. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. And, and we obviously have um, things in the Gospels, accounts in different Gospels where they both cannot be true. Right. Right. I mean, so either Jesus was crucified during the Feast of the Passover or the Last Supper was a Passover feast. It can't be both of those. <laughs> right. Right. And, and right. there's a discrepancy there. Right. Now, now what the text is going to say is that we have to take into account the fact that these people are writing on to particular churches and and they're writing they're they're constructing their gospel in the light of questions that are relevant to their particular churches they're addressing and things like that that's a really big step i think for the for the document to take and to acknowledge ex- that these are not just dispassionate historical accounts you know yeah and that, and that taking literary genre dave verabum clearly approves so if you can approach say noah's ark the story of noah's ark and say yeah. Okay, maybe there wasn't a worldwide flood 5,000 years ago. And we're all descended from a bunch of people on a boat that floated around the Middle East, you know, for 40 for a years. year, by the way. Oh, for a year, <laughs> yeah. depending on which version you read. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that maybe this is a piece of mythopoesis, or maybe that's not even the way to put it. Maybe a kind of taking and reworking of various flood mythologies from that area and mm-hmm. putting them into a Jewish theological interpretation 
of of what these catastrophes there probably were local floods and so forth end of the ice age historical memories of human cities being wiped out as the mediterranean sea rose and engulfed cities and glacial dams broke and all that sort of stuff so this accounts for why there were so many flood mythologies in that region and so on and so the jews come along and they say well we too are going to appropriate a, a, a flood narrative only to our theological purposes, yes. which is to emphasize sin and the fall and, uh, and so on. But you get yep. my point. But the point absolutely. is, is that Dave Verboom says, you know, you, you can do this kind of stuff now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you see, though, pushback from that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you still see Catholics out there saying, oh, yeah, Noah's Ark is literally true. Or, you know, you find like to, to use the Passover example that you used, Catholics still saying, well, maybe there were two different dates for Passover yeah. uh, and we have some evidence of that. And, and so maybe this group of Jews practiced Passover according to this and this one, that. And so you get the point. But in some sense, Dave, everyone was saying, well, whatever, if that turns out to be true, that turns out to be true. But it, even if it doesn't turn out to be true, it shouldn't disturb our belief in the uh, in what the inerrancy of the bible actually means yeah absolutely and i and i, I have a quote here that is that really kind of hits this um that we should let me see if i can find it here um yeah this is this is and, and this was a you'll you'll remember that this was a contested point it's it says uh that and this is in um i don't know where this is actually but it's 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 close to section 12 uh, or paragraph 12, it says, it follows that the books of scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error, that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. Right. So there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of qualifiers there that do leave a little bit of room for the possibility that uh, either Luke or Matthew got it wrong that this that jesus preached a sermon either on a mount or on a plane right it, it, it can't <laughs> right yeah. a mountain and a plane are, are two different things is it or, blessed or, are the poor in spirit or is it ble- or blessed are the poor that exactly you got Which it version right. that's right yeah. and none of those things are obviously integral truths for our salvation if jesus said blessed are the poor we can work with that if he said blessed are the poor in spirit we can work with that right and we can actually use them maybe to help understand each other you know etc and it's it is interesting that the church fathers at one point were tempted to kind of create a harmony of the gospels where it was all kind of harmonized and they and they wasn't it called the hexameron the wasn't tech, that one tetra, yeah tetra, te, uh, something yeah I, I not the hex the, the, no the, not the hexameron tetra six days oh of yeah, yeah um, the gosh oh the tetragrammaton is that right or I can't I can't no that would have been uh that's isn't that YH? The, 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 those are the consonants for Yahweh. I think that. Oh, God, what am I thinking? Yeah. Well, yeah. We're uh, drawing a blank right now, but I know exactly what it was called. And I just. Diatessaron. Is that it? Is that it? Yeah. Yes. yes. It was called so, the Diatessaron. There we yeah. go. So it was, it was, you know, obviously this harmony. And the father said, no, the, in a way, what they said is the truth is symphonic. It's almost like a, it's like, you know, alto, soprano, you know, it's, it's, they're different emphases in the gospels, but they, they actually, um, they actually go together better than just monotone, right? They, they get to different facets and we would miss certain aspects of Christ if we only had a gospel that was totally harmonized because John is going to emphasize things that Luke doesn't and Luke, and that's, that's part of God allowing for the human author to bring his own 
you know, issues, his own person. I mean, obviously Paul's personality yeah. is in his letters, right? We, we, we'd never want to say that this, that's the Holy Spirit's personality. It's, it's, it's Paul's personality, but his theology is the theology given to him by the spirit. You know? Yeah. And so what Dave Aram is cautioning us against too, is this line of argumentation that says, if, if I can show that the old Testament got the size of a particular lake wrong, or its location wrong, then how do we know anything is true? Exactly. How that's do we know I didn't get everything wrong? Right. Uh, and, and and so Dave Aramis said, oh, that's, that's, that's a completely yeah. silly way of approaching the concept of inerrancy. Because right. even if you want to assert that every single thing in this book is true, there's no way to prove it. So you're still in the same epistemological quandary <laughs> that you were yeah. at, you know, at, at the beginning. You, you're right. still going to have if your mindset is to begin with doubt and skepticism, you got to prove this crap to me first. Yeah, it doesn't matter what your theory of inspiration is. You're right. never going to get to where you need to go. That, okay, that's exactly the, right. the credibility of the scriptures has to be on a different level. This is what Dei Verbum is pointing out here. The, the, the warrants of belief of scripture is not going to be in whether or not you can propositionally prove this is true or that historically true, but whether or not the entire thing sort of hangs together, as Balthazar would say, it's like a gestalt, a form, yes. uh, a picture of Christ that has a powerful, provocative believability to it, almost an icon that the New right. Testament is creating an icon of Christ for us. Uh, yes. that it's either going to speak to us or it isn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And that's why it's, it's directed towards faith. Right. I mean, that's that's going to be key. Um, and by the way, that thing, too, where, you know, that that verse you read from Dave Urban was was one of the very debated verses where, you know, the, the, the scriptures are inerrant with regard essentially to matters of faith. This is why your analogy from before is is an apt one in matters pertaining to faith and morals, essentially the kind of stuff that we need to know for our salvation that yeah. God wanted in the Bible for our salvation there. Right. That leads then to the, the other question that was debated sure. at the council. It's along these same lines. Uh, ecumenical relations with Protestants was never far from the council father's mind. Right. And so one of the reasons why they wanted to avoid this two source theory, two independent sources, is they wanted they did want to develop. And I've read various authors that say this who are yeah. there and or historians of the council. They the, the council fathers did want to develop a kind of Catholic version of sola scriptura, mm -hmm. a kind of Catholic version of the material sufficiency of scripture mm -hmm. for salvation, that the Bible contains everything we need to know with regard to our salvation. And more than that, everything about the Catholic faith, everything in Revelation is in some way, shape, or form in the scriptures. Yes, at least implicitly, right? So, at least implicitly. And it yes. was my, I was so like the to... Marian dogmas. Right. They're implicitly there, even Absolutely. if they're not explicitly there. And this was a very contentious point at Absolutely. the council, because Dave Verbum is saying the scriptures are sufficient for our salvation in the sense that everything we need to know about for our salvation is somewhere in the scripture, because somehow, some way, all of Revelation is grounded in scripture. Yeah. Yes. And I think that if you want to make a nuance, you would say it's it's not sufficient in fact. Right. Uh, right. It, 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 because the spirit continues to lose the lead the church into truths that are not like the Trinity and stuff like that. It Which takes, is why now tradition 
is necessary. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that tradition is ultimately an outflowing of the revelation that one has in Scripture. That's and it. that the church, medit- as Mary meditated on these things in her heart, the yep. church meditates on these things that are in Scripture in her heart for 2,000 years, for 20 million years, however long. And because this is a divine revelation, you will never completely plumb the depths of this mystery. That's exactly it. Yes. So, so the the passage that you're referring to, which was extremely contentious, the old guard was very upset that they were that that, that we were saying something like Protestant sola scriptura, right? That's right. what they thought was happening. So it was a they they considered it to be a false ecumenism, you know, a kind of yes. like, oh, well, let's well, and there may it may have been tainted with a bit of false ecumenism. And I'm sure there were people at the council who were guilty of false yeah. ecumenism, right? Yeah. So, so as the thing went, there was a a sentence that was added, and this was under the recommendation of Paul VI, because he, he, he that one faction was so angry about this one issue that he would have never gotten the vote that he wanted if, he, if something hadn't happened. So he sent them back to the drawing board. And this is yeah. the sentence that they came up with to, to deal with this. This is at paragraph nine. Um, Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. And that That's was right. added at last minute almost. Why, do, why don't you say that again so everybody can hear it again? Yeah. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. So there's a yeah. kind of an interesting theological move here. They're distinguishing between revelation and then the various ways in which revelation gets to us. And right. I think what they're saying is revelation, it's all there in Jesus Christ. And then scripture is going to witness to that in its own way. But of course, it can't tell us everything that Jesus didn't said. John explicitly says that in his gospel, that, 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 he, that nobody could right. say all the things that Jesus, that, that you can't tap out that much mystery, that much truth, right? So, so clearly then, as you're saying, though, you're absolutely right. Scripture is the word of God in the sense that it's all there like in a seed, yeah. And then what we're going to we're going to need tradition to help us understand how that seed is going to look when new questions arise. And the point is, is that even if there are things in the apostolic deposit of faith that are not explicitly in the scriptures that yeah. do get handed on orally right. through the yeah. church in various early church traditions or even some manu- non-biblical manuscripts that have been lost. Right. The fact is, is the ongoing task of the church in the development of our tradition and those, in a sense, of extra biblical traditions, mm-hmm. the ongoing task is to ground and root those in those little seeds of that you do see in the scripture. In other words, the okay. task of reconciling both the tradition and the scriptures together to see them, yeah. how deeply they co-inhere with one another. By the way, that verse, and, and you can comment on what I just said, I said that verse you just read. Uh, was the result of, once again, Monsignor Gerard Phillips penned most of it. And it was a conflation. There were about there there were four different (laughs) attempts to write that sentence (laughs) under the direction of Paul VI. A couple were just no good. And then there was, I think, a guy named, but I think it was Bishop Columbo or a theologian named Columbo, not the TV show, but Columbo, who wrote a version. And then Phillips had a version. And those two versions got fused together into yeah. what you're into, what you just read right there. Yeah. Uh, which once again goes to show nobody was planting little ticking tie bombs. There right. are compromises going on all over the place. And there weren't yeah. compromises for the sake of, well, let's just cobble together some mixed up 
chimera of a document that's going to confuse everybody. No, there are real Catholic paradoxes that have yes. to be maintained. Yep. Yes. The council, therefore, in its text, and Dei Verbum is a classic example of it, is the Catholic both and. Yeah. That, that we're not simply going to reduce the scriptures and revelation to two sources of information, as you brilliantly put it at the beginning. We're not simply going to reduce it to, oh, it's just a human religious imagination and a Catholic milieu. No, yeah. we're going to do something else here. Yes. And, and, and so you see this in that brilliant little statement there that came from Colombo and, and Gerard Phillips that is there. And yeah, so that scripture, everything is in scripture but not explicitly so. And so we have to combine that with other things in the tradition that we've learned and, 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 and figure this out, how they co-inhere. I like that word. They co-inhere with one yes. another. Yeah, and it almost says that. And again, that same paragraph, I just I had to get these two quotes because they're so good. Uh, in the same paragraph, now it says, hence there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring. That's, the I think, the key. There, there's a divine wellspring of revelation and, and scripture and tradition are both caught up in that, right? Um, in a certain way, merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. Right? That's right. And that's so what, I, that that's what I'm on about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, that's it, right? So that's... that's well, uh, it, it reminds me to... Uh, Balthazar develops this. Yeah. And you see hints of it. Uh, there, it it's an old Alexandrian theology. Uh, mm -hmm. Going back to Cyril of Alexandria and you know, and that era of church history, that developed what is uh, what is called the corpus triforme, the the sort of threefold incarnation of the word. Yeah, and the primary incarnation of the word is in Jesus of Nazareth, yep. and that is therefore revelation in the pure sense. Yeah, Jesus, the incarnation of God of the Word of God in Jesus the Man, is yep. revelation as such in a pure sense. Yeah. Scripture represents not an inlibration, so that it's all the ipsissima verba dei, but is the privileged witness, the spirit-inspired privileged witness to that primary revelation, yeah. and therefore kind of represents a, a, another lesser incarnation of the word. Yes. And then the church herself is a kind of incarnation of the word yeah. in sacrament, in saint, in sanctity, in teaching. And all of all three of the both scripture and church, therefore, they'll flow out of that same primary revelation that is Christ himself. So it's, it would be wrong, I think, according to Dave Verbum, to say the Bible is revelation. Right. And scripture is revelation. And now mm -hmm. we just have to figure out, well, what is revelation based on the coming together of those two sources of revelation? The ultimate source of revelation is Christ. Right. Yes. Yves Congar has a beautiful saying. He says, the Holy Spirit is the transcendent subject of tradition. Yes. Meaning that it's all there in the Holy Spirit from the get-go. So the first handing over is the handing over of the Spirit to the apostles, et cetera, et cetera, to give them a share in that. And of course, because we're fallible finite human beings, our share is always going to be somewhat impoverished. We can't handle the whole, we're not the Holy Spirit. We can't, you know, which is That's why right. Paul says, even though he's writing the Bible and he knows he's inspired at times, he says, now we see through a glass darkly. It, it's yeah. very hard to understand that passage if you have a full on fundamentalistic understanding of some kind of inspiration where it, all the, you know, all the information is there and there's nothing more to know. Um, 
Yeah. We won't yeah. need that mediated version. We won't need Bibles in heaven. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> or sacraments. Right. So. Well, but, and that's also, you know, it raises the whole, th there's just so many issues and, and people pointed out, I mean, day verbum is just a starting point. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does not in any way, shape or form. It, 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 in many ways, it opens up a Pandora's box. It opens up yeah. this enormous can of worms and it says, okay, here's some basic guidelines. Now yes. we need to develop these things yeah. uh, and develop the th because there are other issues, you know, like, okay, if the biblical text is uh, inspired what about the translations uh, and, and right. what about the fact that our earliest known manuscripts say of the gospel of John is from the fifth century. Uh, we don't have the original texts. Yeah. Are the original texts, the, the really inspired ones and the later ones are kind of sort of inspired yeah, yeah. insofar as they're still loyal to the, or does God inspire the whole process of textual development and reception down through the, I'm reminded I once saw a debate, of between Protestant evangelical TV preacher types about, you know, they were, they were actually grappling with this very issue about, yeah. well, the Bible's the word of God. And it was all Southern. So the Bible's word of God, uh, but we're reading the Bible in a translation. So how can that be the direct word of God when it's not? And so they came up with this theory. The King James translation of the Bible was inspired by the Holy spirit. I'm sure you, you as a former <laughs> Protestant, I'm sure you've heard this theory. <laughs> yes, yes, I have. And this is what's I mean, that's one of the things that attracted me to Catholicism when I was a Protestant is the problem with Protestantism, when you put all your eggs in one basket, the way they do, you put an enormous amount of burden on scripture to be the end all be all of everything. But if the Holy Spirit is guiding the church, especially in its bishops and, and things like that, um, it, you don't have to fear these things, right? I mean, it, it, for instance, I mean, let's face the fact that it was a decision of the church to canonize 27 books in the New Testament. There's yeah. no book in the New Testament that tells us there's 27 books in the New Testament. I mean, so we're all, you know, we're, we, we, of course, it's, it's a coming together of, of the, the wisdom of the church and things like that. And uh, um, this, is a, I, this is another quote, if you don't mind. Uh, no, please do shortly after the one in, in 10 that kind of gets to what I'm saying it clumsy, so I might as well say it from them. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the word of God committed to the church. But the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on and guarding it scrupulously. Again, a beautiful balancing of yes. both the Catholic position, but acknowledging the partial truth of the Protestant tradition that in some sense, Scripture is above the church, right? It, yes, it, this is yeah. key. Yes. That is such a key verse in Dei Verbum. Thank yeah. you for quoting it, because yeah. it's, it's the verse that places the church under the authority of scripture in some sense, absolutely not in that Protestant sola scriptura way, right. but to realize the church is not simply, um, I don't know what's the word, an oracle that can just sort right. of spout out new ideas about the Bible every day, right. uh, based on, based on its own inner Gnostic kind of insights into what it all means. Absolutely. No, it has to pay attention yeah. To, to the internal pedagogy of this text and her own pedagogy as a church must imitate 
the pedagogy of that text. Yes, the church is under the the scriptures in a way that the scriptures are not under the church. I mean, I, I think right. that there has to be a priority there, which is why can- canonization makes sense. Why would the church canonize a set of writings unless they were saying these are going to norm us? That's They're right. Gonna, and and exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. It, and we're going to see this, too. It's it's a similar related idea <laughs> when we get to Lumen Gentium, mm-hmm. where, believe it or not, Paul VI, in order to please the conservatives, wanted to assert that the authority of the pope comes directly from God and not oh. part and not in a sense from the church uh, and oh. the the council fathers actually said no to Pope Paul wrong yeah. and placed, even though he is the Supreme pastor with universal jurisdiction over the church, he is still under revelation. He yes. is under the deposit of the faith, which is entrusted to the whole church. So he's not an Oracle on the Tiber with a direct pipeline to God that can right. now just in, say, Jesus was made of green cheese. And I dictate that this is so, Okay. <laughs> Seriously. And it's the same here with the church. It's the same sort of very nuanced. We're not sola scriptura. We're not saying that unless it's explicitly in the Bible, we can't believe it or whatever. We're not reducing everything to it. But the church is in some sense under Christ, which means under revelation, which means under the scriptures as well. Uh, And the church fathers understood this perfectly well. Yes. So this yeah, is, as, as various authors have pointed out, this is resource mount theology in absolutely. action. Absolutely. It yeah, is looking at it's looking at the modern distortions that had crept into the church's tradition uh, uh, later on. The Pope is the Oracle, the Tiber or the scriptures is simply a, a, a set of propositions that we then deduce things out of. The, yeah. the, the council fathers went back to Aquinas, to Augustine, to the church fathers and said, this is. This is all seriously wrong, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, to rethink this. This is exactly uh, the Cardinal Frings uh, said this about the first document that came out, the one that you talked about. You know, 1962, yeah. October, his famous speech. Yes. Yeah. Not the Genoa he, speech, but this is a different one. Go ahead. He says this mode of speaking about two sources of revelation is not ancient. It is alien to the Holy Fathers, alien to the scholastics, and even to St. Thomas, alien to all the ecumenical councils, unquote. So yes. I, I said that because you're talking about a resource mont. This is an attempt of the church to correct a more recent tradition with a more ancient and more authoritative tradition, right? There are traditions yes. and then there are traditions. And sometimes traditions can can go because they're not helpful. They're, they, they, they're new. They, they were an attempt to do something, but they don't do it as well as deeper, better, more consonant traditions. And uh, I, I say that because I know uh, there's there's this tendency among rad trads to see all development as betrayal. But oftentimes development is necessary precisely because you have to develop from a tradition that's kind of gone haywire. Right. You, you're, you're yes. Seeing a tradition. Yes. Uh, 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 even uh, Cardinal Franks pointed out that even the Council of Trent, despite distortions in interpreting it that have crept into the scholastic edifice, Council of Trent did not teach the two-source theory of scripture and tradition in the sense of two parallel tracks going side by side that really don't have uh, a deep intrinsic theological connection with one another. He goes, "This this is a complete misreading of Trent 
as yeah. well. And we have to understand, too, I'm, I'm glad the, the living magisterium of the church and going back and finding the deep roots of the tradition in order to correct certain distortive traditions that have crept in. One of the most contentious things at the council with regard to Dave Baraboom was precisely the incorporation of the word living magisterium, the yes. living tradition, because the conservatives saw that as code, as weasel words for, well, we can just make stuff up now. They saw it as code for modernism, for subjectivism, for relativism, so on. And so they started quoting St. Vincent of Lorraine, who said, you know, that things can, yeah, they, they can develop, but it's all got to be related in this strictly organic way. And they're right about that. Yeah. But what they ignore is that Vincent of Lorraine himself referred to the tradition as a living and growing yes. tradition. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so in a strange kind of way, the traditionalists at the council who were quoting St. Vincent of Lorraine were quoting him as if he did not believe in the living magisteria of the church. And he did. And so they were really, yeah. and Cardinal Frings and others are pointing this out as you, you guys are just, you, you are so desperate to cling yeah. to this propositional notion of revelation you know, that you're, you're skewing everything along the way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to go back just to one thing you said earlier about the, the balancing act on the one hand, it's a balancing act between the kind of rationalism of the neo-scholastics and then the historicism of the, of the Protestant liberals. But the other thing that is, is, is interesting about this document that you pointed out is <coughs> to take seriously some Protestant concerns about uh, you know the church kind of just making things up against scripture and and, and stuff like that, yeah. and I, I was noticing I was reading this how careful they're be they're being ecumenical in the best sense of the word, but they're not in any way shape or form selling the farm. So that that quote that I read earlier about yes. um, not everything that has been revealed, it, it, you know, it, it, we also need tradition, right? Which which is pushes against the Protestant thing. So what kind of happens? It seems to me after the council. And especially more right now, this is the stuff that you've, of course, been dealing with for the last couple of years in your blog and things. There, there really do seem to be growing factions where one faction just kind of wants to act like the council didn't happen and just go back to just putting yeah. <laughs> the 19th century anti-modernist stuff and, and kind of doubling down on that. And then, of course, what happened after the council is the mainstream academic theology isn't really rooted in the council, it seems to me, almost at all. Like, I read this right. document again for the first time in a while, and I thought, well, that has almost nothing to do with the theology that's being done at the Catholic Theology Society of America. It's not right. It's not under the authority of Revelation at all. It's You that's never right. hear somebody trying to figure out what Scripture says about X, Y, well, or Z. Well, this is a this and Gay Verbum is a case study in this so-called spirit of Vatican II taking right. over. Uh, I mean, I just had an article somewhere National Catholic Register, Catholic World Report, I don't remember which one, where, where, you know, I talk about the fact that, I mean, you know this as well as I do, there is this conciliar theory out there of, mm -hmm. of conciliar interpretation that sort of, it's come to be known maybe rightly or wrongly as the Bologna School. It's a kind of theory of rupture mm -hmm. uh, that what the council actually said in its documents is not really very important because the right. documents are simply paying too much attention to the conservatives. They're too full of compromises. What the council therefore represents more than a set of texts is an event, a mm -hmm. spirit filled event, a dynamic that the council adopted a certain process mm -hmm. of change and reform yeah. uh, that so which in a sense, therefore, gives conciliar justification. If you view yeah. the council in this way as a process and an event 
rather yeah. than simply a set of texts, then the council itself gives you theological warrant for going beyond the text themselves. Yep. Okay. And, and one of the ways that, that this then gets done is, okay, that you see, we've been talking about the, their concern with ecumenism. Mm -hmm. and, and so the question then arises, well, which Protestants actually did they have in mind for the most part? <laughs> <laughs> right. Karl right. Barth, sort of reform Protestants or Lutherans yeah. up in Germany. So many Germans involved in the council. One can easily imagine that their primary foil was Lutheranism that they had in mind. So one could make out a case of one is a rupturist that really, whether you're talking about the mass of Paul VI, which was clearly in many ways an attempt to make the liturgy more amenable to, to Protestants mm -hmm. uh, or you know, day verbum stretching over backwards to emphasize, you know, the, the sufficiency of scripture or whatever you want to call it, uh, that that those are the two important things right there that mm -hmm. we're reaching out to a certain kind of Protestant. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're going to keep doing. And, yeah. and we're going to leave the council behind. We're just right. going to keep pushing the envelope and yeah. reaching out and reaching out to the Protestants right. uh, to the point where maybe someday to hell with the Pope, we'll just morph with the products, you know, and, and, and go from there. And, and anyway, I'm, I'm yes. rambling, but go ahead. No, that that's exactly it. Right. So it's, it's, it, so if you, if you, if you look at the council that way, as the beginning of allowing Catholics to be liberal Protestants, which is, which is, I mean, that that's to put it very simply, but that's exactly at the end of the day, what's happening in the progressive Catholic circles, then of course, it's just the beginning. Right. It's 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 it, you know, it's 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 just the, it's just the you know, it, it, these things have to happen slowly. So there's a real profound uh, or there's a very, very objective understanding of what development of doctrine looks like among these people. And that is it's constantly moving in the direction of the secular West. That's right. It's, it's moving to greater and greater secularization, greater and greater freedom of the individual to define him or herself, however, they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. That's, it's always in that direction, right? So, so the, the spirit of the council started the trajectory and, it, and, and then it kind of lost nerve. And now I think they think that Pope Francis is finally, he has the nerve to kind of take the council where it where Well, it was yeah, going. which is why those of us were suspicious of the synod on synodality, where yeah. all they wanted to talk about was the spirit of the synod, the event of the synod, the process yeah. is established right. by the synod. And as soon as the synod document came out at the end and didn't have any mention of LGBTQ in it, you had people like Cardinal Supich already on the airplane saying, oh, the text isn't as important as the process itself. Yeah. yeah. All right. And Absolutely. so it's a kind of experiment in incrementalism that that, that they're yeah. involved in here. And the incremental steps, as you correctly point out, are always in one direction. Yes. And so so and that's why when people say, why are you why are you so upset by fiducia supplicants? Because it's the same stupid incrementalism at work. And only only those with blinders on blinkers on who are right. sort of hyper papalist apologists for the pope can never do wrong in anything uh, are going to say that this is clearly not an incrementalist step in the direction of reconsidering the whole moral theology around homosexuality and LGBTQ. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's clearly that that is clearly what's going on here. Yeah. And, and, and so those, the, yeah, it's, it's funny because they, 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 they're, they're extremely careful in that document to, to, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's and, you know, qualify and all this stuff. But there's no way that they didn't know how it was going to be received. I mean, five right. seconds after the document, the ink was dry. Father Martin was up in, uh, 
New yeah. York, you know, blessing a, a, a married gay couple for the cover of the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, big photo op is supposed to be in secret, really exactly spontaneous. Yeah, they're right. It wasn't spontaneous. There was a social media going around. It's a St. Paul's Church somewhere, a priest in a rainbow colored stole standing yes. on yeah. the altar. Yeah. Blessing yeah. this gay couple that Justin Gay yeah. had been in a civil marriage. And so uh, are, are they going to be disciplined? Cardinal Fernandez, Pope Francis? I don't think that discipline right now under this pontificate goes in that direction. It only goes. No, <laughs> it only I goes mean, in it's, the other it's... direction. <laughs> Who was it? I was talking to the other day and we're off topic, but it's an old <laughs> Peronist, an old Peronist adage, you know, um, uh, for my friends, all is permitted. For my enemies, nothing but strict justice or something along those lines. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, no enemies to the left of me. And yeah. so to bring it back to Dave Arabum and the council and so yes. on, uh, as I, I have an article that just came out in National Catholic Register last week or a few days ago that was making the point, look, Pope Francis is not a heretic. This is not, we're not in the great apostasy and so on. What this is, what this is, is simply a recrudescence of these exact same debates, only in a slightly different modality and a slightly different context. We are seeing simply the ongoing, unending, unresolved right. appropriation of the Second Vatican Council, right. which is why I think what we're doing here in unpacking Dei Verbum, Lumen Gentium, and other is so very important, because what we're saying is no. The council was not simply a process and an event that we can now just read into it, whatever the heck movement right. of the spirit we think right. should be read into it. It right. had some things to say, Absolutely. some very specific theological parameters. And right. the only way out of the mess that we're in right now is to pay attention to what the council said, Absolutely. not to simply say to hell with the council as the trads do. Let's just get behind it because that leads to a whole nother set of problems. Right. Okay. And not to simply go beyond the council. Well, the council doesn't matter because we've moved beyond it to something else. No, we, the council is the council. It happened. All yeah. right. Just yes. like Chalcedon happened. Nicaea happened. Yeah. Deal with it. All yeah. right. And it said some important theological things. And that's what you and I are going to try and unpack over these coming months. Yes, absolutely. Just a final comment on that, that, that line. I mean, Orthodoxy is a balancing act. And that's yeah. what I like about the council so much. People complain about it because it seems to talk out of both sides of its mouth. And there are documents late, later, especially the like Gaudium et Spes can have moments where it feels a little bit schizophrenic. Because Even you know, Balthazar called Gaudium et Spes dilettantish. Yeah, it really does like just, you know, back and forth because it's precisely because it's not a theological document. It, it, it has a tendency to feel like it was written by two people that totally disagree with each other. And I think it may have been, but whatever. The first half is different from the second half. Oh, There's yeah, no doubt yeah, about that. Absolutely. Yes. And, but, but if you look at Dei Verbum and, and, and just about every document of Vatican Council I've ever, I've ever read, um, it is a beautiful balancing act. I think it is between these extremes that things tend to go in. And the problem is when you decide that you're only going to buckle down on one side of, of the issue, that's precisely when you get into trouble. Because Chalcedonian, uh, the Chalcedonian model is you have to hold two things together at once. You can't take your eye off the error on either side, or you're going to get into error yourself. And that's precisely what the council seems to be suggesting about a certain kind of 19th century Catholic theology that only saw one error 
and constantly harped on that one error. And that was an error. There's no doubt it's an error. Modernism is an error, but that's not the only error. Right. And and so you can end up backing into a non-Catholic position because you've failed to see. The and you begin of- to take on the very patina of the yes. error that you're rejecting That's when it exactly. becomes your white whale and yes. your hobby horse. And it's yep. the only thing you ever want to talk about. All of a sudden you begin to define yourself in those exact same categories. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Which is why, you know, our friend, Father Robert Imbelli, I think, has said that he thinks Dei Veraboom is probably the most important. Uh, my apologies to Father Imbelli if he didn't say this, but I think he did. It's the most important conciliar text. I think so. And Father Imbelli is is also, in in terms of this balancing act, Father Imbelli has also spoken about how in the post-conciliar era, it's a strangely decapitated church in the sense that Christ is the head of the church. And 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 yet we we only only want to talk about the spirit, the spirit, the movement of the Holy Spirit. Yet yep. Christ is the head of the church. And this is the main point that Dei Verbum is making. We can talk about different streams of revelation, scripture, tradition. We can talk about the tech the techne of all of that, the minutiae, the mechanics, how it works itself out. But deeply and most profoundly, revelation is Christ, and the church is Christ's body and bride. Uh, and he is the head of the church. And we cannot proceed in this decapitated manner, as Father Embelli says, which means a resubmitting of ourselves to the actual teaching of the conciliar texts. Which tell us to submit ourselves to revelation. I I was at Marquette. You literally had to define yourself as a revelocentric theologian yeah, it was almost like you were coming out of the closet. I'm, I'm. Hey guys, I'm, I'm, I'm out of. Uh, I'm revelocentric. I, if you think, I, I think about that in hindsight. I'm like, there is no Catholic theology that is not revelocentric. If it's not revelocentric, it's not Catholic. I mean, it's just that simple. That's right. I remember years, years ago, there was a uh, an article in Communio by Cardinal Casper when he was still sane. Uh, I, I'm sure and he's still pretty much sane, but uh, nevertheless, it, the article was about how theology needs once again be about God. He he argued against what he called theologies and the genitive theology of this theology of that instead of, you know, theology is a discourse about God. It's logos about God's logos. And we need, and so that's what you mean by revelocentric, you know, and, and and yet we had, you and I both had to apologize for that. Like, yeah, Yeah, this is actually treating scripture as if it's authoritative. That was like yeah. a weird thing at Marquette if you did what? that. What? Wow. You know? Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's it was called crazy. a Bartian or something. It was, it was a, but this document makes it very clear that according to the Second Vatican Council, this is the only, this is theology has to be under the word of God, just like the church has to be under the word of God. That's right. So, yeah. yeah as long as what we mean by the word of God is expansively understood yes. to include both scripture and tradition under the one word that is Christ with scripture being the privileged witness to that word and church in a sense, co-inhering in that uh, it's like I said, it's a balancing act, man. It really is. And there are paradoxes involved, but it's ultimately the paradox of Chalcedon. It's the paradox of the God man. Yep. Ultimately we're talking about Athanasius and Maximus, the confessor. Yeah. Or lurking in the background in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to add to this conversation before we sign off? I think I feel like we did a pretty good job of hitting those three topics. uh, And and 
yeah, no, I'm satisfied. I'm sure that there are going to be things, and, and this will be a notice to our listeners as well, if you're frustrated yeah. by certain things. I, I'm sure there are going to be things that you and I are both, once we hang up the phone here, so to speak, about. are going to say, oh, man, wish yeah. I had a V8. You know, yeah, you know, geez, I wish I said, yeah. and uh, but, but we can bring that up later. Uh, there's nothing. And I'm, I'm going to spring this on you for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm actually then going to announce that what I would like to do at some point in this series, too, I have to learn how to do this technologically from my friend, my tech guru, Andrew Gnadek. I'd like to have a live version of this where we can invite viewers to come in and ask us questions. I would love that. Because you and I can't possibly anticipate in advance every question that somebody might have, you know, right. and I think it would be really, really helpful. We've, I've got some really, really great viewers and listeners on, on this channel. I know because they they email me and I, I think a live Q&A would be really something really good. I've never done that before, but moving forward, I think I will. I think it would be a good idea. All right. Hey, well, thanks a lot. Uh, I, I assume uh, next time we're probably going to be dealing with uh, Lumen Gentium is what I, I would think like. that sounds good. And yeah. there might be some mopping up operations we want to do with Dave Arabin, but we've dealt with Revelation. I think it's maybe time to then move on to, to the church, to Lumen Gentium. And once we get those two down, uh, then, you know, we got Revelation and church down. We can move on to liturgy, religious freedom, interreligious dialogue, all that kind of stuff. Yep. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Yes. And, and thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm going to hit stop record now. And until next time, bye-bye.